0: Welcome to this podcast on Conflict, Management and Economics. Produced here at Queen's University Belfast, this is part of a series created in the Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences, focusing on the ideas and research of academic experts here at Queen's in relation to the study of conflict. I'm Professor Richard English from Politics at Queen's University Belfast and I'm joined today by Dr. Joanne Murphy and Dr. Graham Brownlow. Joanne Murphy is Senior Lecturer in Queen's University's Management School and Interim Director of the William J. Clinton Leadership Institute. Her work explores leadership, change and organisational development in politically volatile environments. She's a Fellow of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice at Queen's, and a senior fellow of Northern Ireland's policy think tank, Pivotal. Graham Brownlow is senior lecturer in economics in the Queen's University Management School. He's also a research associate of the Queen's University Centre for Economic History, and his work has focused on wide ranging topics including public finance, the economics of paramilitaries and terrorism, and the implications of devolution and Brexit. Joanne, I'm going to start the conversation by asking you about your forthcoming book, Management and War. Can you say something about its central argument?
1: Yes. So the the book will be released in August and the purpose of the book was really, I think, to to bridge a gap between what we understand about organisational activity in so-called normal times and then how organisations and people within them, what we would call organisational actors respond to environments of conflict and particularly environments that are extremely disrupted or dangerous And I suppose if there is a central thesis to what the book is trying to say, it is that organisational actors very often operate as conflict transformation entrepreneurs, or that's what my research tells me. So instead of acting in a neutral way, very many of them are taking very significant personal and organisational risks to try to resolve conflict and to build better societies around them. And so I suppose if I had to define a central thesis, that would be it.
0: And as you're saying, your work has interpreted peace building and other transformations as an organisational activity, as well as a political and community process. So organisational change has been vital, it's been central. In Northern Ireland, from where we're speaking, that's involved significant organisational change for, amongst others, the police. Can you say something about your research findings there?
1: Absolutely. So in a previous book I did, I looked at organisational change and transformation in what was previously the Royal Ulster Constabulary and is now the PSNI, the Police Service of Northern Ireland. And one of the things that we are very clear about, but I suppose, you know, has been missing from the literature and missing from research around conflict transformation is the significant role that organisations themselves play. And it always struck me That within Northern Ireland in particular, without the organizational activity that goes on during a conflict transformation process, so without the process of change, organizational change within the police, you wouldn't have had the process of peace building that we have seen around uh, policing as well. So the organizational component, I suppose I would say, is very often missed. But without that organizational component, so without you know change agents within the organization, without appropriate leadership in terms of the change process without the kind of risks that exist around change and also without the pain of change because many of us find change process is very difficult you don't get the environmental or the political outcomes that you would expect so without putting resources and time and effectiveness into the organizational process we don't get the kind of political outcomes that we need in order to build peace.
0: An organisational transformation in conflict and conflict resolution has also had profound economic aspects. And I want to bring Graham Brownlow in on this. Graham, the Northern Ireland Troubles, which we touched on there with Joanne's work on the police, the Northern Ireland Troubles saw profound economic consequences from terrorist and other political violence. Can you comment on some of your own insights into that?
2: Yeah. Okay. So I think uh, if we think about a standard economic model, where we have sort of consumption, investment, government spending, and trade. All these four components of this basic economic model were affected by the troubles uh, in some shape or form. In terms of consumption, uh, while the level of consumption wasn't probably that much affected, how people spent and where they spent was certainly affected. Um, But investment and government spending and trade were all materially very obviously affected in the case of investment, of course, inward investment was reduced, Uh, manufacturing investment was reduced, in the case of government spending there was a huge uh, splurge in public spending. The Northern Ireland economy that only was probably about 7% in the 1950s, the the subvention or uh, fiscal deficit in the 1950s, only equal to 7% of the region's economy. By the end of the troubles, was about sixteen percent, and it is now higher actually. Um, and if we look at uh, the aspects of consumption, uh, sorry, investment, government spending, and trade, well, trade again as well, uh, tourism, etc., was also uh, reduced. So I mean, in all the different components, at a very macro level, the troubles had a real impact. And if we go into a more micro level, there's all sorts of distortions that the troubles threw up.
0: Some of that distortion involves state activity and state spending and what might be referred to as counter-terrorism or counterinsurgency has had its economic effects across the world, obviously, in the huge ways we've seen since the 9-11 atrocity and responses to it. But in Northern Ireland, too, the responses to non-state political violence had economic effects. Could you say something specifically about what we can learn from that, Graham?
2: Well, uh, if you go into the archives, you see really what the term was used, the interrelated strategy, where it's very clear the British government very early on had military objectives, political objectives, and economic objectives, and they were quite willing to trade off these different objectives, um, uh, most famously in the case of, say, John DeLorean. Uh, this was not necessarily the most uh, sensible economic project, but it served uh not just economic objectives, but political and military objectives. Uh, And that's the way I would view the decision-making. And also, um, it's more complicated in the sense that very early on in the Troubles, indeed 1971, there's a recognition of the interrelationship between economic activity and the level of violence. And that leads to some quite interesting policy divergence uh, very early in the Troubles. And
0: as is clear from what we've been saying now, your research in both cases, Joanne and Graham, has had case study specificity. You've both worked on closely focused analyses of particular cases in context. But you've also been addressing themes that clearly have world-significant implications beyond any one case study. Management and organisation, conflict transformation, economic growth, the economics of organisational development. I want to ask you both a bit about this. Joanne, in what ways have case studies been vital to your own work on the wide-angled intellectual themes that you've been addressing beyond those particular settings?
1: Well I think it's absolutely critical. The only way we can really understand how these big intellectual themes work in practice is by actually looking at how people manage within organisations and how those management processes are affected and impacted. And one of the things that I've been able to do is look at conflict in, you know, what we would, I suppose, call low intensity conflict in Northern Ireland and in the Basque Country. And then look at what was a really high intensity war within Bosnia and to look at different reactions within different environments. And I suppose, you know, coming out of those... Um, Coming out of all those contexts we see common themes about service delivery, about business development, about the role of the private sector, about individual agency in relation to specific managers and leaders and those are all really core issues within management and organisational studies research. But I think it also leads into a wider concern around what these liminal spaces Uh, that post-conflict environments really are tell us about managing in huge degrees of uncertainty. And also, you know, one of the things that I try to think about and to to talk about a little within my book is the reality of managing in what Primo Levi called the grey zone, you know, a decision-making environment in which there are no good outcomes, there are no good decisions. And and that's very interesting. And that isn't something that has been looked at very much in terms of management and organisational studies research more generally, because sometimes people within those environments are faced with incredibly difficult and sometimes physically dangerous situations and decision making. And looking at the nuances of that and the reality of that within environments is incredibly important.
0: And have you found, Joanne, that as you've been doing research on those different cases, say Bosnia, the Basque Country, Northern Ireland, that the actors themselves involved in conflict and in conflict transformation, that the actors themselves in those three settings, for example, have been keen to learn from cross case comparison, that they've been interested in importing that which they can learn from what others in other settings have been facing in terms of similar challenges?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that is really evident, and I suppose it's interesting because a lot of the people I speak to don't, I suppose, see themselves as directly involved in conflict transformation, even though from any objective analysis, we would say that they are. And when you when you talk to them in detail, they begin to recognize that a lot of what they're doing is facing that direction. But in terms of, of looking across and looking at other conflicts, they very often directly see comparisons, but they're also able to identify differences. So you know, when you speak to some of our colleagues in the Basque country, you know, they they understand that there are huge similarities in relation to that conflict, but they also understand that the kind of, you know, uh, demographic uh, issues that we have here in terms of interfaces and communities that are, are, are not integrated in the way that perhaps we would like them to are very alien issues for them. They're, they just don't recognize those. So while there are certainly comparisons, and I think a lot of people, particularly around issues of dealing with the past and managing the past. You can see those very clearly. There are also very significant differences.
0: And Graham, just as in Joanne's work, there's been a rich relationship between the case study and the wide angled analysis, but also a question of trying to relate the two. So in economics and the study of economic growth, there has been, hasn't there, something of a division between what might be called the generalists and the particularisers. And your work has dealt with both aspects of that. Where does your own research heart lie in terms of that?
2: Well, I, I would favor the particularizer sort of side of the, the division, um, but I should maybe explain the the general particular divide. I mean, the general uh, position is sort of a neoclassical position in which terrorism has been conceptualized as part of the economics of crime literature. So essentially what you have is a model in which actors have a marginal cost, marginal benefit calculus, and uh, the equilibrium is violence. And so the debate within that literature essentially has been uh, should you raise the marginal costs to terrorists of engaging in terrorism, i.e. reduce violence through that uh, stick strategy, uh, which is very much in line with the economics of crime literature. Um, more recently, people have argued, actually, no, actually, you can adjust the quote unquote relative prices and engage and bring people in from the cold and increase the benefits of democratic uh, behaviour and hence reduce violence that way. But um, I think there's a lot of problems with both those positions, which I've involved myself in in the past, for the very simple reason that I'm not sure that the level of violence as an equilibrium is a really uh, comprehensive idea of of what violence, terrorism and society is about. Um, I think that when we think about history and interdisciplinarity and things like that that are left out of this account, that I think that there are many of those aspects that I'm not sure that that general position is entirely satisfactory. So I think the the particular angle is where you look at the historical starting point of each conflict. Um, You also are far less uh, convinced by the pure rationality in the model. Um, and I think if you use those as your starting point, then you end up obviously making the observation that it isn't a choice of carrot or stick. In the case of Northern Ireland, it's very clear from the archives that both carrot and stick was used. Um, and uh, I, I think that um, that that's why I think while obviously I've been involved in writing it but from that general position, I think the particular position is a more historically defensible one.
0: And it's not always the case, Graham, is it, that those who work in economics have been as keen as you are on looking at the historical, looking at the archival, looking even at the empirical, how easy is it for someone based in economics to go down that genuinely transdisciplinary route?
2: It can be quite difficult because it is a branch of economics where there are gatekeepers, um, and where the dominant position has been to do econometric work uh, on the economic consequences of violence or to do game theoretic work on the economic organisation of violence. And if your work doesn't necessarily easily fit into one of those two categories, uh, then you can be accused of being, not doing economics, inverted comma. Uh, economics is a discipline that has a very strong uh, sociology um, in which what is and isn't seem to be um, kosher. I mean, there's a very famous paper called Is it Kosher to talk about culture, um, for example. So this is a a problem within the economics profession, I find that um, meaningful and important work, uh, I think, in the area of economics of terrorism, I think, can be crowded out by work that I think is sometimes a little bit superficial when you uh, dig a bit deeper.
0: We've been talking very much about the original research that you've both been doing, Joanne and Graham but you're both also university teachers here at Queen's as well as researchers. I want to ask how far your research on the subjects we've been discussing has informed your work with students and also to ask about the particularity of teaching these kinds of topic in Belfast. Graham, let's start with you on those questions about research and teaching and about teaching in
2: Belfast. Okay, so uh, my current teaching is a second year devolution module and a third year corporate strategy module and as likely as it might seem in the case of both modules I've been able to think about these issues and integrate them into the teaching. In the case of the devolution module obviously part of that course I teach the economic history of Northern Ireland from 1920 to 72 and then obviously to the present day. Obviously that requires me to think about political violence and how it did or didn't shape the Northern Ireland economy one of the lessons that comes out of thinking about this is, yes, the Troubles certainly had a very real impact in the Northern Ireland economy. That's, you know, obvious. Uh, but it would be wrong to suggest that the problems of the Northern Ireland economy were necessarily caused by the Troubles. I mean, Northern Ireland economy massively underperformed before the Troubles. And actually, since 1998, in their very real sense, as I've alluded to earlier on, about the subvention, the Northern Ireland economy has not overcome the the trouble it hasn't certainly generated a peace dividend as it should have. So it's a the violence aspect is a good starting point for telling the students not to simply to see the violence as the all-purpose excuse for the Northern Ireland economy. That's the first example. Uh, Less obviously but actually equally relevant is uh, corporate strategy for the simple reason that that actually historical evidence in the study of paramilitaries or terrorist groups, and indeed corporate forms are both very useful for a similar reason. (laughs) You can't really go into a modern Middle Eastern setting and get a clipboard and ask questions about the economic organisation of violence in the modern world for obvious reasons. But actually, in modern companies, there's so much commercial confidentiality, you can't find that information out either. What you can do in both cases is actually use historical examples of historical paramilitaries and historical companies and see that actually, regardless of time period, paramilitaries or companies are, are confronted by common sets of um, issues through time. And so actually one thing to tell the students is uh, historical evidence is really powerful because it enables you to, f- to find your way around informational problems. And also another thing that it reminds us of is there are whole issues even within companies and uh, uh, gangsterism etc in which there is a blurring of legality and illegality and and those sorts of issues. It's not so um, clear cut.
0: And Joanne can you say something also about your experience research as it feeds into teaching and both of them as they are particularly experienced in Belfast. I've noticed when I've travelled around the world that for some settings violence, for example, and conflict is seen as something which is exotic to the context of the university, which is not the case in Belfast. Has that or anything else affected the ways in which you've experienced your work as a university teacher here at Queen's?
1: Well, I think I'm very fortunate. I mean, my core teaching is around leadership, organisational behaviour and organisational change. And so when we're dealing with an MBA class, for example, when we're talking about leadership, you know, one of the kind of hot topics in, in management and organizational studies at the moment is around extreme environments and how organizations operate within extreme environments, which is kind of ironic in the circumstances, because I think we couldn't be in any more of an extreme environment than we are at the moment with the COVID-19 crisis. So this is really genuinely relevant and genuinely something that organizational Um, individuals need to know about. So what we would always say is that what you see within an extreme context is is present in every organisational context. It's just less visible. So for me, using my research, which does look at extreme environments and looks at disrupted and sometimes dangerous environments, it allows you to extrapolate aspects of leadership or aspects of management and behaviour which people wouldn't be able to be exposed to in other in other areas. So in that sense, I think it works very well. One of the kind of core issues that we're also involved in in the Management School is executive education, obviously, and we're very... We're very fortunate and and very committed to the idea that executive education should be evidence based and research led and so being able to take work that 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 does draw on um, for primary research and, and you know sometimes really quite big research projects and build that into our executive education offering, I think does give us a very distinct advantage. Of course, being in Belfast, the one thing you can do is you can talk about extreme environments with absolute authenticity. You know, and I'm very fortunate, like I'm sure a lot of my colleagues in Queens, and that I have a very large data set of people who have managed and led organizations through really disrupted and dangerous times, and that data is you know it's it's very valuable but it's 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 very poignant at times as well, and I suppose whenever we're teaching about these issues, I think it's very important to remember the really human aspect of it and the fact that sometimes, you know, when when we speak to people, we're asking them about events that have been very difficult for them. And we put, you know, all the ethical constraints around that we can and we're very careful. But at the same time, these are sometimes life defining events. And to be able to convey those in a way that is appropriate to students, I think, gives them an insight into environments that they wouldn't have an insight otherwise.
0: Joanne Murphy, Graham Brownlow, it's been excellent talking about conflict management and economics with you. There have been very rich insights there based on your work, your research cross-case, wide-angled, but also the reflections on the particular context of doing this work at Queen's University Belfast and doing the important work of education as well as research. People listening to this will be able to find out more about Joanne Murphy and Graham Brownlow's work by looking at the website at Queen's, and I would strongly encourage you to do that and to read and follow what they've been writing. But for a fascinating discussion of conflict management and economics, I'd like to say a profound thanks to Dr. Joanne Murphy and Dr. Graham Brownlow. Thank you.
1: Please rate and review and share this podcast.